0: Hello, and thank you for listening to the We Remember podcast, a companion podcast to go along with Griffin Communications' special 25th anniversary coverage of the Oklahoma City bombing. Hopefully, by the time you're listening to this podcast, you've had a chance to watch our series of stories that we aired as a part of the 25th anniversary TV special. You can check those stories out on our website, newson6.com, as well as the News on 6 app. I'm Dave Davis, and joining me today is Lori Fulbright. Lori, thank you.
1: Absolutely. Glad to be here, Dave.
0: Lori, I wanted to ask you, you know, just your experience covering the Oklahoma City bombing because as far as you know, I mean, we're the only report, you're the only reporter to have covered it really from the beginning to the very end, right?
1: I think that's true. It's a unique experience because not only did I drive over there that morning and stay on site for weeks on end living in an RV um, covering it from the site, um, but Channel 6 made the unique decision to move me to Denver. And I lived in Denver for almost a year. And I covered the McVeigh, Timothy McVeigh trial from start to finish, gavel to gavel. And I stayed out in Denver and then covered the next trial. I think Tim McVeigh's was maybe three and a half, four months long. It was forever. And then I stayed and covered Terry Nichols trial every single day as well in Denver. And it was another probably two, two and a half months for that. So I was out there almost an entire year. And then um, I went and covered... In Terre Haute, Indiana, McVeigh's execution. So, yes, from very beginning through all the trial to the end, it was a unique experience. I'm not sure that there's maybe no other reporters, but very few other reporters who covered the bombing that way.
0: In April 19th, 1995. Just let's start there. Where were you, and how long had you been working at Channel Six?
1: Um, let's see, three years. So I had been here three years. I was the crime reporter, obviously, and I work every day with a photojournalist named Oscar P on the crime beat. So we were at the newsroom, and then the news director at the time, David Deutsch, comes running out of his office screaming and says, Laurie and Oscar, get to Oklahoma city right now. There's been a, an explosion. And, of course, at first we think that there's a gas explosion. That's typical, you know, kind of thing that you would cover. So we get in the car, and we're racing there, and while we're on our way there, we realize it's more than that and how many casualties there are. And back then we had um, CBs. And all the news trucks. So CB we radios. are C B radio. So we are getting on the C B and we're telling all these truckers, get out of our way, scoot over. We're trying we're a news crew. We're trying to get to Oklahoma City. There's been a bombing. There's, you know, hundreds dead. And these truckers were moving over to the right and we were flying. I would hate to imagine how fast we were going. And we were flew all the way. So really from the time it happened, we were there about an hour and 15, 20 minutes later on site. I mean, there was still smoke in the air and, you know, rubble and people running around crazy and sirens when we first got there. And then, of course, we realized how big it was going to be because when you get there, you just can't even imagine. It's so different in person, which we say all the time. When we cover a tornado, when we cover anything, seeing it firsthand is so different than the images on TV. And that's when our news director um, rented a huge RV and sent it over there and parked it right there on the side. And we were parked by a gate where the rescuers were walking in and out and the you know covered in grime and sweat and tears and we were doing our reports and they're walking past us and it was just the look on their faces was so devastating and we were over there for weeks
0: would you say what would you say stuck with you in image or images the most from that time because like you said you were there for days straight there right? At ground zero, essentially.
1: Yeah, I would say um, there and my memories are much more vivid of the trial, frankly. I mean, it was we were all running around crazy, doing stories, getting our job done, editing and typing and the RV and um, just running on adrenaline and instinct. So, but, you know, the look on the workers faces as they were coming in and out, new crews replacing the old crews, those crews coming out and just the look of total devastation and defeat on their faces and then constantly remembering all this is caused by somebody on purpose. That was, it's not an accident. That was hard. But for me, covering um, all of the Oklahoma City bombing, for for me, the hardest part, the most devastating part, personally and emotionally, was the trial. Because you sit there every single day for eight hours a day, and you hear story after story after story in such detail that you didn't at the scene. At the scene, it was run and gun and run and gun and go. But sitting in that courtroom and hearing... The victims testify, the first responders testify, and you heard things that you had never heard before. That was that. Those stories will stick with me forever. There's no doubt.
0: And by the victims, we're talking about parents of some of these oh, children. Yes. Because the, the, the daycare in absolutely. The, in the so
1: 19 children were killed. And yes, one um, pregnant woman, her husband testified, and, you know, they had just gotten the nursery picked the way they wanted it, and they just got the mobile and the crib and... Of course, um, you know, he's testifying. And there was a woman who was at the bombing site who testified, and they were carrying those dead babies out from the daycare and just laying them on the ground because they had to run back in and get the next one. It was, you know, this huge, fast-moving operation. And she just kept crying, you're laying them on glass, you're laying them on glass. Of course, there was glass everywhere and dirt. And um, even though they weren't alive, it bothered her so much that I don't know where he came from. But some guy somewhere found a broom and he started sweeping away all that glass so that as the rescuers bought out child after child, they could lay him there without laying them on the glass. And that she testified, and I remember that story for sure. Um, there's a Marine, he's former Marine, Oklahoma City police officer now, and he testified that he ran in, you know, it's dark and it's smoky and dirty, and you can't really even see what you're grabbing, but he ran in and he testified that the first, you know, body he could feel, he picks it up and runs outside. And of course, it's a child who's dead. And he lays it down, and he runs back in the building, and he's feeling around. The next thing he feels is he grabs a body, and he runs out into the sunlight, and he realizes it's another child who's dead. And he said he hit his knees, and he said, God, if you—I want to be here. I want to help. I want to do this, but I can't pick up another dead child. I just can't do it. So he testifies. He runs back in the building. He's feeling around. And he finds a child. He runs out into the sunlight, and the child has a brick sticking out of its head, but it's alive. And the ambulances were coming and going so fast that day that he's this big, muscled-up guy. You could tell, probably a former football player, is what he looked like on the stand. But he runs after an ambulance that's leaving and doesn't have, you know, his hands are full with this baby trying to hold this brick in his head, and he kicks the doors, and the ambulance stops. And even though it already had people in it, he just lays that baby in that ambulance, and off they go, and that baby survived. And he's testified that that's the only way that he was able to continue his rescue efforts that day. Um, There was, I mean, story after story Mm -hmm. that people really never heard because at the scene you can't tell all those stories that you hear in the courtroom and there were definitely days I thought I can't go back in and listen to this Uh, rescue workers found a woman and she was buried up to her neck in the rubble and water was rising around her and that's when that second bomb scare went off and you know there was a second bomb scare and the rescuer workers did not want to leave that building but they had to because you can't have the rescuers die and she was like don't leave me don't leave me and he testified that they found her a hose somewhere and said, you put this hose in your mouth, and if that water goes over your head, we'll find you when we come back. And they did not want to leave this woman, as you can imagine, but they did. And when they came back, she was gone. And then um, they found a hand sticking out of the rubble. One of the first responders testified, just a hand. And he grabs on this hand, and it's still warm, and it's moving. And that's all he can see is a hand. Everything else is buried And they're yelling, whoever this person is, hang on, hang on. They're digging as fast as they can. And, of course, it was just moments before the hand, you know, wasn't moving anymore. And Mm. it's just you sat there in that trial, and that's when you realize the magnitude and the devastation that Timothy McVeigh caused. And, I mean, there were days in the courtroom everybody was crying. I mean, the jurors were crying. We were crying. The media was crying, um, except for one person. And Timothy McVeigh never, ever— Shed a trial, uh, shed a tear during that entire trial. All the stuff that we heard, all the stories and the devastation, he never once even looked like he cared. I mean, he would look at his watch like, you know, what time is lunch? Yeah. The only time that Timothy McVeigh ever paid attention in that trial is when his sister took the stand. That's the only time I saw him look up. That's the only time I saw him look interested in who was on the stand or what was being said. Um, but that was all those other months and months of those stories. Um, He didn't care.
0: And is that what jumped out to you about Timothy McVeigh? What what did you see in Timothy McVeigh's eyes when you looked into his eyes?
1: Yeah, I mean, you know, I got mad at him every day. I did get to the point, and I don't share the story with very many people, but I got to the point where I was hating him. I was consumed with hate um, because I was in the courtroom every day. and So I called my mother in Missouri, and she was like, well, that's not going to do you any good. (laughs) You know, you have a job to do. I wanted to be there, and I wanted to tell Oklahomans the stories but, I mean, I was consumed with hate. It was not good. And my mother says, of all things, you need to pray for him. I was like, I am not praying for Timothy McVeigh. Woman, you've lost your mind. Mm. Um, but I did. I had to start praying for him every single day. And that's the only way I was able to get through the trial. I mean, the emotions were hard. But my was focusing all of my emotion on him. Because he did not care. He did not ever change his facial expression. He did not shed a tear. He did not act like he cared and of course he didn't I mean he was on a mission you know a whole other thing. Um, but ironically one of the weekends I think it was a maybe a memorial weekend I don't remember I flew my mother to Denver so we could have you know like a three day weekend together and I took her to the courtroom with me on that Friday afternoon and then we would have a Saturday Sunday Monday off from court to go do some things, and I took her into the courtroom, and it wasn't five minutes, and she leans over, and she goes, I hate that Timothy McVeigh. (laughs) I'm like, hello, you told me I wasn't allowed to hate Timothy McVeigh. Um, But so that helped um, get past that, so that I was able to go and tell Oklahomans every day what was being said in that courtroom, because it was so important. It was the biggest murder trial ever, and people deserved to hear, and I wanted them to hear, but I had to get past that. I, I will admit that I had to get past those days And then just the emotions of it, I never tell this story either, but when I came back to Tulsa, I told our boss here at News on 6, I could no longer be the crime reporter. I thought I've just, I've had my fill of that kind of testimony, and I just, I can't do it. And of course, they were like, what, what, we can't have that? So um, they were like, what if we make you weekend anchor, and you anchor two days a week, you'd only have to cover crime three days a week. And I thought emotionally, I could handle that. And I tell people that's the only reason I ever got to anchor the news here at News on 6. But, of course, then I went on to be the crime reporter for 28 years and obviously went back to it full-time five days a week and loved it and have cherished that beat and loved that beat. But right after that trial, I had to take a little bit of a break because it was a lot.
0: And, you know, a lot of people don't realize you maybe are not reporters who haven't been in this business, but we see on TV trials with cameras and you can see the reaction of judges and sometimes the jury on TV and you can see the defendant, but there were no cameras no. allowed in the courtroom for this federal oh, no. trial.
1: No, it's a federal trial. And um, it was, I love uh, Richard Mage was the judge and I don't know how tall Richard Mage was. He looks like he was about four foot five, but he was a huge presence in that courtroom. I mean, I wish I said this a m- million times. I wish the trial would have been t- televised because he was no nonsense i mean he ran that courtroom with a f- iron f- fist. And when he said court starts at nine o'clock every morning, we were all standing up and you'd watch the second hand. Click, click, click. It hit nine. Bam, he walked in that door. He didn't let anybody have an outburst. He didn't let the attorneys. You know how you always see in a trial, they want to meet up at the bench and talk about something and it takes forever. He didn't allow that. I'm like, I don't even know how you can have a trial without bench conferences. But he never let, he was like, call me later. No, we'll talk about it later. We'll talk about it after the end of the day. We'll do it later. I mean, he ran that courtroom so slick and so fair and unbiased and objective. He was what every judge should be. And I wish that's what people would see when they watch some of these trials, because, you know, now when they watch trials, there's antics and people acting up and playing to the camera. If we would have had a camera in there, people would have been so impressed with how he ran that operation. It was on time. It was efficient. It was quite something to see. And of course, I've been in I don't even know how many trials and courts and hearings and thousands over the years, but nothing like that.
0: Judge Mache was unique.
1: He was amazing. And I wish people could have seen that. I wish that would have been um, videotaped. But of course, it would have been snatches here and there. And, you know, that's the thing is when you're sitting in there eight hours a day, you can't begin to tell people everything you see in here. But it would have been very impressive on TV for sure.
0: And then, of course, the distinction of the, of the Terry Nichols trial, just to refresh people's memory.
1: His role was obviously smaller, but obviously integral. In getting the fuel and getting you know all the ingredients together and his certainly his beliefs I think were um, of the same as Timothy McVeigh's Timothy McVeigh really thought he was gonna start a revolution in this country that if he bombed this building there would be a revolution of citizens and we would change the federal government and of course none of that happened and I think Terry Nichols had some of those beliefs but I don't think he was as ardent and as fervent as Timothy McVeigh was about some of these things that had happened in the past. Of course, you know, people like that point to Ruby Ridge and Waco um, is what got them stirred up. And I think Terry Nichols was kind of like, yeah, but I don't think he was diehard like McVeigh because even at his sentencing, you know, McVeigh finally stands up to have his say and we're all just thinking, okay, he's finally going to say, I was wrong and I'm sorry and this was crazy, but he doesn't. He gets up and, you know, talks about a, a quote um, from many, many years, hundreds of years ago and how you can refresh the, the blood of patriots with, you know, I mean, just he never even backed off. He never even changed. He never none of it sitting through the trial and realizing he killed innocent babies and he killed innocent pregnant women who were just running errands and people who worked for the federal government. But weren't responsible for Ruby Ridge and they weren't responsible for Waco. None of that mattered to him. Whereas I do believe um, Terry Nichols did feel some of that regret. I do believe he felt some of that sorrow. Um, He certainly looked like it more during the trial. um, But I don't think he was as fervent in his beliefs as Timothy McVeigh was. McVeigh went to his grave believing wholeheartedly everything he did was justified, I I believe.
0: Timothy McVeigh's execution, I mean, you know, what are the challenges of covering an execution? Obviously, there's not cameras allowed obviously uh what are the challenges of covering an execution well
1: that execution you know I've witnessed I've actually personally witnessed eight executions in the state of Oklahoma as part of my job as a crime reporter so with McVeigh's we all drove to Terre Haute Indiana to cover it and it was of course a massive media you know circus like everything else had been I mean hundreds thousands of media people from all over the world so you there was only certain number of people who could sit inside and actually witness it and I put my name in for the pool but did not get drawn so I did not sit in the room when he was executed, so I was at the scene. But it was um, physically, I don't know how to describe it, but where our trailer was, or we were working out of a trailer, then it was about a two-mile hike to where the execution building and chamber was on the prison site. And so we hiked back and forth, I don't know, ten times a day, this two miles with our gear, going, doing live shots, going, shooting interviews, coming back to the trailer. So actually we spent most of our time, the days that we were there, hiking. And talking about, oh, my gosh, this is like two miles down here and two miles back, literally. And then working in a trailer and trying to get it all together. We don't have the technology, you know, then that we have now. You couldn't do a FaceTime interview and you couldn't, you know, do some of those things, social media. Um, But it was just a physically daunting thing. But anytime you're around thousands of media, like the trial, if you look at the pictures, I have a whole photo album, of course. And there's just, I mean, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people. And I sat next to Scott Pelley from CBS News. I sat next to him many, many weeks of the trial. We became quite, you know, friends, friendly toward each other. Um, but we were around networks, we are around the BBC, we were around people from Australia. I mean, it was every, you know, hundreds and hundreds. And so you're trying to get your story to your viewers because it was so much different being from Oklahoma. This crime happened to us, it happened here. And so it was different for us, I think, covering this whole event than for other people who showed up from out of state or out of country.
0: Scott Pelley, of course, did the interview with Timothy McVeigh for sixty minutes. Did you ever request one? Did you ever want to do a one-on-one like that as a journalist? I mean, sure. w- what was kind of going through your mind with sure? With you that? know, I've
1: interviewed um, lots of prisoners on death row before, and people say, "Don't give them the airtime." I mean, and I get that mindset, but our mindset is always, if you can just, dis- if people can see what created something like this, created a person like this, maybe we can use that. Information going forward to prevent it from happening again. And like when I interview burglars, I ask them, how did you pick a house? What did you know? So that I do those interviews so then victims can be safer. I ask a rapist or a child molester, how'd you pick your victim? What did you do? How'd you get away with it? And that way parents and people can better protect themselves. So I did request it because I wanted people to say, How did he become like this so that going forward maybe we could prevent that in the future? But, of course, he wasn't interested in doing little local interviews. You know, he was very strategic in picking a network to carry his story, Um, and that was fine with me. But, yeah, we had requested it because that's what you do in this business
0: wanted to talk about this story that you've put together for us for the We Remember uh, special at News 9 and News on 6. We're doing a series of stories to, to honor the 25th anniversary and to kind of look back. Tell me about Roy Heim. And why did you ask to speak with Roy Heim for your story?
1: So I've known Roy almost 30 years, of course, and he is one of the sweetest, kindest, most gentle people on the face of the earth. But he is also one of the smartest forensic experts out there in the in the nation, if not the world. And people come to him all the time. He teaches classes. He People come to him and ask his advice. And he, at the time, was a homicide detective. And at the time was actually um, kind of experimenting with how to better do a, lay out a crime scene digitally like you have instead of walking with a tape measure and saying the gun was here and the victim was here, with doing digitally, which, of course, now they do. But he was one of the first ones on the front lines of trying to do that technology. Um, but he serves on a national team that most people don't even know exists, and it's called DMORT. And this is a team of experts, fingerprint, DNA, Emmys, funeral directors, people like Roy Heim, forensic experts, and they go all over the world when there is a mass casualty event, and they identify the victims, which, man, what a difficult, hard job. The Korean airliners, he went there. 9-11, he went there. But um, the bombing was the first real big event for the Mort team. They had just trained, like, 200 people in Oklahoma a week before, which— of course, you go through that training and think, we'll never need this. I mean, it's good to know, but we'll never need this. And then, boom, you've got this mass casualty event, and they had just trained 200 people in Oklahoma. So he gets the call that morning, kind of like I you know, I had, and he gets sent over right away, and he works in the ME's office. And, of course, there's because it's not just victims of an accident, it is a crime. There's a lot that's going on. The FBI is there. The ATF is there. And so every single body that they brought in had to be x-rayed because you're looking for pieces of shrapnel that could be used as evidence in a trial. And then of course they're fingerprinting the bodies as well, trying to identify them and you got 168 bodies and then let's just be honest, some of them are not complete bodies. I mean, there are parts and there, I mean, I was like, how do you do that? And DNA wasn't what it was then, you know, like it is now. But the hardest part they had was how do you identify these babies? You got 19 babies, there's no DNA on file, there's no fingerprints on file for little babies. And Roy Heim came up with this idea that he would send a team into every home that had a child at the daycare and they would process it like a crime scene. They would dust for prints everywhere and they would get prints off toys and off dressers and then come back and compare those because the faster they could do that, the faster they could get that child back to its family for a proper burial. That was very important to this team. So when he sent these teams out to these 19 homes, they were on a mission to get this done for these families. Well, he tells the story that in one of the homes, family and friends had come over. And you know how they do in a time like that. They clean your house. They make you dinner. You know, they take care of you. Yeah. And so the team gets there, and these family and friends had cleaned so well, there was not a fingerprint anywhere of this child, not on a toy, not on a dresser, not on a coffee table, and they just could not leave. This team was like, we are not leaving this house. We've got to figure this out. And while they're thinking, where else could we find a fingerprint of a child, One of them happens to look at the top of the bathroom mirror, a a place a child could never reach, and they see a little handprint because that morning dad had lifted his little boy up to look at himself in the mirror, and the little boy had touched the top of the mirror. And that was how dedicated this team was to find, and they got that print and took it back and identified that child for his family. Um, So he talks about that and how hard it was, and there is a psychologist on this team, as you can well imagine, because of everything they see. And he'll just go through the, you know, and talk to people. How are you doing? How's it going? And he'll sometimes just touch you on the shoulder and say, I'll see you in a couple of days. Because that psychologist can tell, you need a break. And I said to Roy, did that ever happen to you? And he said, oh, yes. And, you know, during this interview, I mean, it's 25 years later. Roy's crying. I'm crying. I mean, just remembering everything that they went through. But, you know, I said, how do you do it? It's so emotionally draining to go and work in an ME's office under those circumstances. And he said, because it's so important. It's so important, and he really thinks that the U.S. as a country does a much better job of getting as much of that person together back to the family. He says, you know, you go work in some countries after an airliner crash, and they're just like, yeah, here's a little bit of, you know, just do your thing. But he says in America, it matters. It matters that you get every single part of that person back to their family. Um, But he, the stories he tells not only from that standpoint, but Dave, there were some crazy things going on that people can't even imagine. People try to sneak into the Emmy's office every day.
0: Were they trying to take evidence? Because you you had mentioned that in the story, right? I mean, So they would go in in
1: because they were like a, and I don't want to, it wasn't Geraldo sneaking in, but Geraldo type people. So it's the, you know, the weirdos out there that want to sensationalize something. So they would try to sneak in from tabloids just to see, I guess, take pictures or say, I was inside and we saw this. I don't know. So they had tabloid people. But then there's that segment of society that is, loves death and gruesomeness and, They had people like that sneaking in. So he tells a story that they all had name tags, of course, in the ME's office. And every night at the end of the night, he would collect all the name tags. And then he'd pick one color of Sharpie and everybody had to use that color of Sharpie the next day on their main tag. And if you didn't have that color of Sharpie that only Roy Heim picked, then they knew you didn't belong there. But I mean, how crazy is that, that they're doing all this God's work, honorable work, and you're having to deal with the crazies too. So stuff like that, of course, you never heard about. So for him sharing those stories, it was just, it was so eye-opening about everything they went through to get this job done, which, you know, I can't even imagine doing, working in the ME's office during that time. But he said after that, really, the team went back and they rewrote their whole book. I mean, the Oklahoma City bombing changed what they thought should be the training, what they thought should be the protocol. They threw all that out, and they're like, okay, now we know. Now we know what it takes. Now we know what to do. And I did say to him, why are funeral directors on this team? Mm -hmm. And he said, well, Lori, we're all scientists. You know, we're doing the DNA, and we're doing the forensics, and we're doing the fingerprints. But there's families. And those families need someone. He goes, that, we're not that. We don't, that's not our strength. But funeral directors, of course, they deal with death and families all the time. So these funeral directors, their job during all of this was immediately, they commandeered, a church volunteered to open up a couple of miles from the bombing site. Families gathered there for information about their loved ones, of course. They had food. They had counseling. They had services. And I was like, man, I would not have thought you've got to have that service. And those funeral directors were so important during that time. And Roy said, Thank God they handled that end of it, the grief, the families. But so you know, Roy says, I scientists, that's not our specialty. Our specialty is this, but you need people who specialize in the human element. So it's just it's an interesting team to be a that they're a part of. And and incredible all the things foresight, they, just oh, throughout to all all top things. to bottom. Yes. And he said, of course, you know, as much as we talked about how hard this was for Roy, he just kept saying, but, you know, the good thing is, Lori, is that Oklahoma experience. We never wanted for anything. We asked and we got it. We need fax machines. We got it. We need this at the church. We got it. We need this at the ME's office. We got it. And he says it didn't matter what they needed. Oklahoma was like, here it is. And he does talk about how positive and amazing that side of it was. Then we did some stories on at the time, but to him— to hear him really describe that was really impressive and sweet to, to remember how Oklahoma's really came together and people from other states as well.
0: The last question I had for you, Lori, as far as PTSD, have you ever thought or how much have you thought about if we knew then what we know now about PTSD, how that maybe could have some people some of those first responders and you talk to first responders every day i do and sure
1: and you know ptsd is real i've covered obviously two war zones i've been to two war zones and met a lot of oklahomans who serve overseas and war zones and and people who obviously see things like the bombing and ptsd is real as we now know and i don't think a lot of as much attention was given to that although back at the time there were counselors available but you know so many of these first responders like i'm just doing my job just doing my job but it is, I think it would have been great to have more of that available then than it was um, available. You know, now it is. Obviously, that's something that we think about as people's mental health who deal with stuff like that. And I was glad to hear the DMORT team did have someone like that on staff specifically to meet that need. But yes, it would have, I think, maybe been great to help more of those first responders because, again, sitting in that courtroom listening to that testimony, I mean, those, they'll never be the same. That bombing changed so many lives forever. Victims' families, obviously. Uh, but those first responders, the stories that they told from that witness stand, it's just, its I still don't forget, I haven't forgotten them, word for word, and it's been 25 years and I can't imagine how they've done it.
0: And increased um, increased your respect for first responders maybe at the time. I mean, you had just started three years ago and did you come out thinking oh, yeah. differently first response I mean
1: I already had a great deal of respect for them and of course on my beat of 28 years of covering crime I've interviewed I don't even know thousands but yes you just can't leave that testimony leave that courtroom without thinking they are the most amazing human beings on the face of the earth to go running into that situation and come running out trying to save people and putting their own families on hold and putting their own emotions aside and yes they did some amazing work then for sure
0: Laurie, thank you so much for talking with us. And we hope that you have a chance to listen to our other podcasts as a part of the We Remember podcast series that we're doing and also the stories that we've posted online for you to watch as well. Thank you so much for listening today.